0: All right. Before we jump into the text, let's do what we always do uh, every Sunday morning and talk to the kids first. Give the kids a heads up of what we're going to be talking about in the sermon, what these scripture passages all about. So, kids, let me have your attention. Uh, I want to tell you all a true story. Uh, I got a buddy. Who lives in Vermont. That's way, way, way up northeast where it's really cold. Uh, and he went to Walgreens one day just to get some toothpaste. He gets up to the front where he's going to buy his toothpaste, and he notices these two boxes. One box is full of, like, new Q-tips. The other box is full of used Q-tips you not know what a Q-tip is? Kids, you you, like, you put the thing in your ear. Don't do this without your parents, it can be dangerous. But you're getting like earwax out of your ear and you take it out. And if you haven't done it in a while, there's like all this yellow stuff. (laughs) That's stuff on the end of the Q-tip. So he's there buying toothpaste. He sees a box of clean Q-tips and a box of like really, really gross, dirty used Q-tips. And he looks at the cashier, the one who's working there. He's like, what is this? And the cashier laughs and says, well, uh, the Q-tips are really put out for people to use them to touch the credit card keypad because you know, we live in COVID right now. And so people are scared of germs. And so no one wants like you enter a credit card to pay for it. And then they're like their numbers you punch in, there's a pad there. People don't wanna touch stuff right now. uh, And so she said, we we offer the Q-tips, but that's not what anybody's using them for. People are just coming up, they see a Q-tip, they clean out their ears, and they use and they put, the, put the old used Q-tips in the box, just there, staring everybody in the face as they're waiting to buy stuff. Okay, my friend told me that a couple days ago. He's like, "Listen, y'all, just I don't know what this illustrates, but this is a good story," and and I immediately was like, "Oh my gosh, that's to, I need that. Yes, I'm going to tell everyone this morning and tell it to the kids because." People, here's the point, people think they know what's going on around them, uh, but they, the, those people totally missed what was going on around. Like, what is the story of the past 12 months, kids? Like, we're living in a pandemic because of COVID. It's like, oh, we talk about, like, that's the story. COVID, COVID, COVID. They didn't understand the story they were living in, so they misused the Q-tips. And you, the point for you is you have got to know what is going on around you kids in order to do life right because if you don't know the story you're going to do it wrong as in things don't always work the way you think that things are going to work and that is even true of kids your work your work kids let me ask you this do you all understand your work children like what do you kids do for work anybody want to share what do you all do for work kids Ooh, obey who? God. God. Genius. Out of the mouth of young ones. Um, Yes, we obey God. Who else do we obey? Jesus. Jesus. And who does Jesus want us to obey? Kids. (laughs) Parents. Yeah, and parents. Uh, And God. And uh, what do you all have to do a lot during the day? As you get older and older and older, Either you're doing it at home or you're going somewhere to do what? Work. work. And what's your work? We call it school. School. You got to go to, like, work, work, work. Every day I got to get up for work. I got to go to school. Uh, we've got one kid at home who gets up in the morning and needs a cup of coffee before he goes to work. <laughs> like, real. Um, okay, so... If you're going to do your work right, like you're going to go to school and you're going to do it right, you've got to understand the story that you're living in. Like, why are you going to school? Why are you doing this work? That's what Paul is going to tell us today in this letter at the very end of 2 Thessalonians. Because there are some who think that, oh, Jesus has saved us. There's nothing left to do. Like, we can live however we want. We can do whatever we want. And we don't have to do whatever we want. Like, you know, still going to heaven, even if I don't do anything. Ooh, Paul's going to say, no, 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 that's not the way to live. Okay, so kids, has Jesus saved us? Yeah. Yes. He lived for us. He died for us on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He is in heaven right now working on us. Okay, is that the end of the story? No. No, there's more to the story. Uh, as in we're still waiting for Jesus to come back. So, kids, does Jesus want us to work Uh, Not at all in this life. Is Jesus okay with us being a lazy bones? No. No, no, no. no. Does he want us to work for our salvation? No. No, no, no. We don't work for our salvation. Jesus has done that. But does he want us to work at loving him and loving other people, people in the church and people outside the church? Because God loves people. And does God want us to work so that we can take care of each other? Yes, that's what we're going to talk about today. That's why we work. It's really, really important. We want to work to show each other love and Jesus' love. Here's what we're doing today. Today we are wrapping up Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. And you might have thought, if you were here last Sunday, and you're really, really paying attention to the end of that passage, you might have thought, oh, this is the end of the letter. Because these are the last two verses of the last passage we were in last Sunday. It says this, Paul says, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And you think that's the end. That could be a a great ending, but he keeps going. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Just as you think Paul is ending, he continues on. Now... It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ, to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Again, last Sunday we could have said the end, except it kind of sounds like uh, Paul doesn't know how to end. His letter keeps going. Uh, when Peyton, my second boy, when he was like five years old, he loved, Peyton loved sitting at the adult table and hearing the adults tell their stories and hearing the other adults like laugh. And, and he really wanted, so he wanted to get in on the action, get in on the fun. So he started telling his own stories uh, at the table, only really they weren't his own stories. He just ripped off the story that he had just heard. Uh, and and he, he just, he'd add some minor edits Uh, But he would always reuse the same punchline. And Payton would deliver the punchline way too soon, like right at the beginning. Like right at the beginning, too early. He's laughing really hard at his story. And we're laughing because he's five and he's cute. Uh, But then Payton keeps going. The story goes on because Peyton doesn't want the laughter to end, and so he keeps going and going and going. After the punchline, he'll tell that he'll keep telling the story for like five five minutes. And he doesn't know how to end it. Like some pastors who don't know how to land the plane in their sermon. We're gonna get there. Uh, like Paul right here, some would say, like, land the plane, Paul. Like where did where did this come out of? Like why end the letter like, oh you, you ended on such a high note. Like that was good. Uh, okay, a little more. Why in the letter this way? Like, what, is this, what does this have to do with what he's already been talking about? It's this. In 1 Thessalonians, in fir, the, his first letter, remember we said this, in 1 Thessalonians, the church was getting harassed by bad, bad teaching. This teaching that was obsessed with trying to predict when Jesus would come back. He's come, he's gone, what do we do? We've got to figure out when he's coming back. He's coming back any moment. Uh, And now, and and so Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to correct that false teaching. And now, just weeks later, maybe a month or two later after writing that first letter, he writes 2 Thessalonians because the Thessalonians are now being duped in the other direction by false teachers who are pretending to be with Paul, which is why Paul ends this letter the way he does. Like, this is my letter. Like, this is the genuineness of my letter. You see it. But there are other false teachers now who are pretending to be with Paul, teaching that this day of the Lord, that Jesus' return has already come. It's been realized. Jesus coming back has already happened. So in 1 Thessalonians, that first letter, Paul had to deal with this over-obsession of when Jesus was going to come back. And now in 2 Thessalonians, he's got to deal with an under-appreciation he's got to deal with a lack of interest, a carelessness, a forgetfulness uh, for the second coming of Jesus. And it sounds like well so like how could you be duped in such a way? That is a problem for us today in the church. Today, so many in the church, they hear this stuff about Jesus coming back and a typical response is, "Wait, Jesus is coming back? Like like really coming back? Like the world is going to really end?" Because I thought we just die, we go to heaven, and on and on and on, the world goes on forever. Uh, and if this second coming of Jesus is ever really kind of brought up in a church, Bible study setting, in some specific terms, the way it's easily explained away is that this, this Jesus coming back stuff is a spiritual reality, not like a physical reality. It's like, this is about Jesus coming into your heart when you believe He comes to you, and then when you die, he comes to you again to bring you to heaven. And you get to be with him again forever and ever in heaven. And so most in the church today do not talk about, well, too many in the church today, let's be generous, too many in the church today do not talk about Jesus coming back as an historical event that is yet to come. So Paul here, like, what does this have to do with what Paul has already said? Here's Paul coming back full circle, at the end of this short, short letter, that's part of how, like, what does this have to do is we're taking this in little bits and pieces over months, but here it is. Paul's coming back full circle at the end of the short letter to address the consequences of this false teaching. People in the church, in this church in Thessalonica, are now, because of this false teaching, they're no longer willing to work. They're to support themselves with food, clothing, shelter. They think that in some spiritual manner, uh, that the heavenly paradise has already come, and work is no longer necessary because they are already experiencing this eternal heavenly rest through faith, as in they have arrived. So what happened was these sluggards, these lazy bones, were living off of uh, living off of others, depending on others who had resources for life's necessities. They're, they're mooching off of uh, others in the church who are working and earning a living. And Paul says, verse 11, it's not just that they're not busying themselves, it's not just that they're not busying themselves with good work, they're busying themselves with being busybodies. It's a great translation. What they're neglecting is that, yes, 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 uh, they were in Christ. They were in Christ by faith. And many things were true of them because of that. Like salvation is a really, really real thing. But they were, all, they were in Christ, but they were also in Thessalonica. There's attention to living in Christ and in Thessalonica. Attention of what is already true of you and your salvation and a not yet of uh, what's not yet true of your salvation. But there's a tension of the already not yet of being a Christian in, in life. And this is true. This is true of our lives as we live in Christ in Houston in 2021. So much of what is theirs, so much of what is ours in Christ has yet to be realized. So, it really was truly ridiculous to live like they were already in heaven. Which will be true of us. It's going to be true of us if we don't get the story straight. Uh, a, a Scottish pastor reminded me of a Scottish philosopher named Alistair MacIntyre, uh, who, argued, who makes this argument, who argues that life is only intelligible through story. And he gives a story to back up this claim. So he says, imagine, right? Imagine you're standing at a bus stop, waiting for a bus, when the person next to you suddenly says, the name of the common wild duck is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. Now, okay, you know, you know what each of those words means. And you know what those words mean in a particular order. Like, you understand the sentence. Okay, and yet, you have no idea what the guy's talking about. Like, you have no idea what the guy means. It's absurd unless you put that in a story. So, one possible story that explains why this rando would turn to you and say what he said is that this guy has mistaken you. He's mistaking you for someone who yesterday had approached him in the library and had asked, do you know the Latin name of the common wood duck? That's one possible story. Another possible story that would explain why this guy is saying to you what he's saying to you is that he's just come from a session with his psychotherapist who has urged him to break down his shyness by talking to strangers. But what shall I say? Say anything the psychotherapist says, okay? Or another possible story that explains all this is that uh, he is a Soviet spy uh, waiting at a prearranged rendezvous, uttering the ill-chosen code sentence which will identify him to his contact. Okay, listen, I do know that if you're a contact for a Soviet spy, the way you're gonna react is gonna look different than if you've been mistaken for some wannabe Latin nerd. Uh, The the point is, you've got to have a framework. There's got to be a narrative, a grand narrative about life and salvation. You're just not going to do life right. And this is true for salvation, and it's true for Jesus' return, and it's true for the day-to-day, day-to-day work uh, that we do. One of those things uh, that we do for the majority of our lives as in, like, how do you think about work? Like, what's the, like, why do you work? What's the point of your work? Why have you chosen to do the work that you've chosen to do? And, and is the point is just to earn enough money so you can retire one day? Like, that's the point of work. Uh, uh, every one of those questions uh, gets answered depending on what story you put those questions into. What we really need to do is to put work into the Bible story of redemption. We're gonna do a two-second, two take two seconds. uh, Review of work from beginning to end in the Bible story. As in, like, think before the fall. This is big stuff, but you can like, we can get this. The point of what's the point of work before the fall? Adam and Eve in the garden, they fall. Like, what's the point of work? Like, God gave them work to do. Well, here's the point. Mankind, Adam and Eve. We're supposed to earn heaven by fulfilling the work given to them by God, specifically Adam. Adam's got to do the work that is given to him by God in order to earn heaven for himself and for everyone else who comes from him. Part of the work that's given him to do is to withstand and overcome the devil and his temptation. Shows up right there at the beginning of the story. The other part of his work, had he succeeded there, was to fill the earth with People. Have a bunch of babies, and they'll grow up and they'll have a lot of babies, they'll grow up and they'll have a lot of babies, they'll grow up, they'll have a lot of babies, fill the earth with people, and have dominion over the whole thing. So before the fall, the goal of man's work was, you can put it this way, the point of man's work was to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden across the entire globe. And to make, to build one universal, worldwide kingdom city full of the one, one city full of the one family of God, because no one is dying, because no one has sinned, and so no one is frustrated by their work, because everyone's work works, and everyone is contributing to the advancements of this awesome culture, this holy culture, where there is no sin, and when they had done their work, and get to the very end, When that would be, I don't know. But when they had completed their work, they would have earned a heavenly rest with God, bringing heaven down to earth, heavenizing the whole thing, bringing heaven down to earth as the true paradise city. And everyone would have been glorified with perfected bodies. Okay, so that's work before the fall. But then the fall happened. And as a result— of the fall, work is now frustrating. This is, this is what God tells Adam and Eve right after the fall. He's like, y'all, now your work is gonna to be totally frustrating. Like by the sweat of your brow, you're gonna bring forth children in, in pain. And, it, and it's not just frustrating because it's now, because now work is difficult and it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. But now there's all this incredible vanity to our work because now we don't live forever. And now the work that you do in your lifetime, one day you are going to die and one day your life's work is going to disappear, which just sounds super depressing. This is that Ecclesiastes stuff of vanity of vanities. This is why we could do a whole other thing here. We will one day. This is why midlife crises are legitimate. Because at some point in your life, you get it. Like the author of Ecclesiastes. Uh, And this can break us. This can break us if we do not accept that God has given our work a new role since the fall. Things have changed. And our responsibility now with our work is not to transform earth into heaven. No. The purpose of our work now is to contribute to the good and the peace of society. Our work now is not the same as it was for Adam and Eve. It's not the same as what it would have been for all of us if the fall had never happened and we were building the one kingdom city of God on earth and everybody's a believer in the one true God. That's not our work now. Now now what we do is we build what we could call the city of man, and it's a common city. That just means it is not holy. That just means the city now, the world is full of believers and unbelievers. And our work, both Christians and non-Christians, our work is to contribute to the good and the peace of society. And so, to do your work to the best of your ability is god Honoring. It honors God because when you do your work to the best of your ability, whether you're in insurance or you're in energy or you're a stay at home mom or you're a lawyer or you're a teacher or you're in oil and gas or you're a banker or you're a plumber or you're in Congress or you're a farmer or you're a Marine, policeman, fireman, assembly line worker, technician, musician, dancer, doctor, shoemaker. Like, when you do your work to the best of your ability, it contributes to the good and the peace of society. And that honors God because that's the purpose God has given it. One of the consequences of laziness and not working is, is, is dissatisfaction. As in, we all, we all know the feeling of having done nothing for the day. Like you have one of those days where you just do nothing. Maybe you have a season where you just do nothing. We know that feeling. You feel bloated and bored. You crave, you know, we crave ease and we crave comfort and we crave and we crave and we can justify it in a million different ways. And if that's all we get, we feel empty on the other side of it. And we have all tasted the blessings of good work. When you make that deal, boom. When you solve that problem at work, bam. When you solve your kid's math problem at home, yes! I've totally forgotten how to do math. They don't do it the same anymore. Like, mm, got it. When you clean the dishes, when you take out the trash, when you clean up that dog stuff in the yard, uh, when you mow the yard, it's so good. You do it, and it's like, that's so good. When you serve someone, serve someone a meal that's so good all work is good all all work is good not just the work that we put monetary value on all work all work has value because it adds to the peace and the good of society which is the purpose that god has given it after the fall so work does work and god values it all And the Bible commands us to enjoy the fruit of our work. That's good. Like, that's good news. Uh, It's going to go away after that. Okay. Yes, that's true. And God commands us to enjoy the fruit of our work right now. Like, that's good. That's a good thing. And, And your work not only contributes to the peace of society. God has appointed the fruit of your work to build his eternal kingdom as we give our offerings to the church. Like, the fruit of your work blesses the church to do its work. It's the giving of the people through the fruit of their labors that literally keeps the church going. Work is good, and so a refusal to work exposes big sin in the heart. This is one of Paul's earliest letters, you know, Second Thessalonians, one of his earliest ones. He's going to talk about this stuff until the very end of his ministry. So like one of his last letters that he's writing to his buddy, fellow pastor Timothy, says this at the very end of that letter, 1 Timothy 5.8, he says, Listen, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, like his family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Like that's harsh. Like why why worse than an unbeliever? Because even the unbeliever knows because of how we were created— And by by God's common grace, our consciences still get it that we are supposed to work. Even the unbeliever gets that. Like, we've got to work to take care of ourselves, to take care of others. And if unbelievers know that, and then they see Christians trying to weasel their way out of work because of some terrible teaching, that is going to dishonor the gospel in the world. It's going to put up barriers to the gospel. So it begs the question... What do we do? Like, what do we do about the disorderly? What do we do about the idle, sluggards, in the church? You've got to notice Paul's not talking about. It. He's not worried about people outside the church. He's talking about the problem in the church. This is this is directed at us. Like, what do we do about the idle in the church? Verses six to eleven, he says. First, we need to imitate Paul, and we need to imitate those who, in the church, actually are out in the world doing their work properly. Imitate those people. Like, find people with great work ethics, imitate them. Imitation is a great way to learn. And we need to not follow the idol. Follow the hard workers, not the idol. And if you are one of the idol, verse 12, you need to stop it. You need to repent. And if the idol refused to repent and still call themselves Christians. Like, you know what I'm doing? There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Like, I have this freedom to do this. Or, the, you know, the Jesus, the, the, you get the teaching, we're like, well, you, listen, Jesus, come back, we're free. We don't have to work. If, you, if, you, if there is someone who is idle and refuses to repent, still call themselves Christian, this is what not following them looks like. You need to keep your distance from them. And you need to continue to love and encourage them to repent, verses 14 and 15. And Paul's point here, got to be clear about this, Paul's point here is not absolute isolation of the righteous from the ungodly. Everything else in the New Testament, how Jesus lived his life, totally flies in the face of that. That is not what Paul is saying here. He means the church needs to be vigilant, vigilant, the church needs to be vigilant not to allow such people to influence others in the church. And don't let them influence you. It's important, Paul says, at the end, the, the, what this looks like, the spirit of this is you're not treating them like an enemy. You're treating them like a brother. You're treating them like a sister. You were treating them like family. And practically, just, you know, what does that look like? Well, he doesn't get into details here, but we know practically this can take a lot of shapes. It can can follow a lot of avenues. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a framework of a plan. Basically, practically, uh, it looks like whoever is close to an unrepentant sinner who says that they are still a Christian, it says to lovingly, graciously, patiently encourage that person to repentance. That's easy. If that doesn't work, it might look like multiple people who know this unrepentant sinner claiming to be a Christian might look like multiple people going to this brother or sister to encourage them to repent. Turn back to Jesus. It might look like, as you progress on, you're trying all this stuff, it might eventually look like the leadership of the church getting involved. But it is never a ganging up on the person in the most severe cases, it might look like excommunicating them, which is a really harsh sounding word, but it's just exactly what it sounds like it means. It's severing their membership from the church. It's it's just treating them like they're not Christians. But what Paul means here is not strictly, uh, he's not talking about excommunication here, because there are, these are steps leading up to, at most, the first steps of excommunication because Paul is clear in other letters just like Jesus is clear in Matthew 18 and Paul's letters Rome in 16 Titus 3 that when you finally excommunicate someone that person is actually not to be reckoned as a Christian a Christian brother or sister here he's talking about saying you got to treat this person like a brother like a sister and unless you know we can back up like what does it mean for someone to be disorderly in the church today Paul says at the very beginning, he kicks off the, this part, the end of the letter saying, listen, the idol are those who do not live according to God's word. So for all of us here, what does it look like to busy yourself with something other than God's will for you and the church and your work in the world? Paul's writing this letter from a city called Corinth, He's going to leave Corinth soon, and then he's going to write a letter soon after back to Corinth uh, saying a bunch of the same stuff he's saying here to the Thessalonians. He says to them, watch out and don't associate with those who claim to be Christians and are unrepentantly sexually immoral. Don't associate with those who claim to be Christians and are unrepentantly greedy, swindlers, idolaters, physically violent, or drunks. You've got to be clear here. Listen, does everyone here struggle with, with those things? Yeah. Yes, in some form or fashion, yes. But the question is, is there someone there who is who's doing this in, in some so-called freedom or according to some false teaching and unrepentant? Those are the ones you need to lovingly uh, not let them, not allow to influence you. Does that sound like Intolerance because this is America, this is 21st century, and we, we don't like authority. Like We don't. We don't like authority, even in the church, when we come to passages like this. <laughs> when we come to passages like this about authority of the church here on earth, we don't like it. We don't. We don't like it. It's, it's that thing of, listen, God is my authority. Yes, Jesus is my authority, not some men, not mankind. Okay, but that's not okay, because it's God who has instituted these authorities himself. Like parental authority, that's God's idea. State authority, that's God's idea. Church authority, that's God's idea, and we still don't like them? I mean, yes, there can be abuses by all the. There are. There are abuses in every single one of those authorities, yes, but that doesn't invalidate their authority. Did the Thessalonians, I mean, one question is, did the Thessalonians fall into this trap, that toleration, that's the mark of love? This has got to be the biggest, and this is scholars, pastors think that is the Uh, biggest danger in our day. Uh, This is why whenever we hear this stuff, our knee-jerk reaction is like, no! And it's because we've really been deceived over many, many, many years by culture. And I mean like hundreds, thousands of years of of culture. uh, That to do anything that would influence or transform another person's perceived failures is not only to cross the line, that's reprehensible. And again, we we're talking about like that, that's kind of culture's standard, uh, and we're we're not worried about that. We're you know we're, we're talking about people in the church, but that it, the, like the irony there, the irony of our culture today is bonkers, silly, ridiculous, with all the canceling and shunning, with an abundance of quote unquote influencers who actually don't. <laughs> actually don't work or add anything uh, to the peace of society. It's all kinds of funny. The irony is, is we do not live in a tolerant society. We, we don't. Our culture says tolerance is not enough. You have to affirm the status quo of the culture, whatever the status quo of the culture might be today, because whatever it is today, it'll look different tomorrow and the next day and the next day. You got to keep up. What uh, well, we've, got, we've got to do actually is we've got to remember the story that we're in. As in, just a couple examples. What, what if you saved someone from committing suicide? What if you stopped someone from hurting themselves physically? I mean, is that intolerance? Like, how could you? Uh, is it hateful that in this congregation there are people who cut other people with knives? who inject drugs into other people, who shoot lasers into people's eyeballs, and we pay them for it. Uh, think, think, of the, like, think of the family, because that's actually what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the church as a family. If you've got kids, you know, you know discipline is part of loving your kids. So that like the kid who wants to take a bath with your kitchen knives you're going to say no, because you love them. It's the parent who doesn't love them is like, hey, whatever. Love corrects. You can't sweep stuff under the rug. Paul says you've got to deal with the errant member of the church who refuses to repent. If we love them, and we do not want them to live under the illusion that all is well, to, to, just, to just let them go and do what they want to do is to set them up for colossal failure, and it is not love. The purpose of church discipline is not punitive. It is not. It's redemptive. It's to bring people back to Jesus and back to each other. And it is never to be motivated by smug self-satisfaction as in like you are encouraging someone to repent because you just love the taste of it. No, this is motivated by love and it is motivated by a desire for peace because that's what's implied uh, is that behind this discipline is grief. Well, that's that's why Paul has to say like, y'all, d- the ones who are doing, like don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in doing good. Like don't grow weary in what we're calling you to do. Like without that, without that grief, like... There's a grief there where you grow weary with this. You don't want to do this anymore. And without that motivation, the the motivation of grief and love, we are just going to be a bunch of Pharisees. It is grief for the gospel. It is grief for the church that is experiencing this hardness. And it is grief for the member who is overwhelmed by some deceit. And this is hard. This is hard. C.S. Lewis, English philosopher, author, Uh, Said that the hard sayings of Jesus are only good for those who find them hard. Move over a little from England to Scotland. Uh, um, This Scottish pastor also reminded me of another uh, Scottish doctor, A.J. Cronin. This guy, uh, 20th century doctor and later in life novelist. Uh, He tells this story of a stray boy who is taken in by a family. Uh, a mom and dad and their son take in this stray boy and they all love him. Like the son loves this stray boy so much they become best friends. They do everything together. And one day the stray boy contracts a deadly disease. And so the stray boy and the son have got to be isolated from one another, which is unbearable because they have, they've become attached to one another. And the stray boy makes a turn for the better. And he is out of the woods, but he's still very, very sick. And one morning, the dad goes up to check on the stray boy to find that his son has snuck into the room in the middle of the night to be with his friend, to take care of his friend, and he's fallen asleep with him. And as a result, within two weeks, the son contracts the disease, and he dies. And when A.J. Cronin hears what happened, he says that he curses that stray boy and the foolishness of the parents, his friends, to take some stray in. And seven months later, he's finally able to make it to his friend uh, and he goes and he visits him and he's imagining that he's gonna find his friend just totally, just totally undone, depressed uh, through the tragic loss of his son. And when he arrives, he finds his friend working in the garden and there working right next to him is the stray boy. The the stray boy had some really hard name, last name to pronounce. And so when Cronin arrives, goes to his friend, takes him aside. He hugs him. He comforts him. And then he asks, okay, what about this Paul? I can't even pronounce his last name. What are you going to do with him? And his friend says, well, you'll be able to pronounce his name now because his name is my name. It's the same name as mine. I adopted him as my son. Okay, you go in a lot of different directions there. Uh, It's this, it was a must. It was imperative that there be distance between the two boys when one got deadly sick and was contagious. In the same way it is a must, it is imperative that there be this distance where you're not allowing one to influence the other between the members of the church uh, when there's one unrepentant or group of unrepentant sinners and they say they're Christians but steeped in terrible sin, refuses to repent, don't think they're doing wrong. But the day grace breaks through, through the loving discipline of the church, through the grace of Christ, and the unrepentant sinner repents and turns to Jesus, away from their idolatry, on that very day, the brother or system is welcome back into the garden, fellowship, and communion of the church. That's the that's the purpose of church discipline. We can't, we cannot simply gloss over disagreements about when we're talking about super serious things, like the deity of Jesus, the Trinity, the ju- justification by faith, what it means to be the image of God, the purposes of sex, what grace is. To, to just say, hey, let's not fight. Yeah, you know what? Let's just agree to disagree on life and death stuff. That may seem like it's going to keep the peace. It won't. It will be superficial peace that comes at the cost of the gospel that will not end in peace for anyone. You simply cannot read passages like this and say, listen, you, you don't know Jesus, Uh, Jesus is not judgmental. Jesus is tolerant. Jesus is full of grace. And we've got to hold on to—you can't. You can't—you don't know Jesus. Jesus is not judgmental. Jesus is tolerant. Now, Jesus is full of grace. And we've got to hold on to the real story that grace has everything to do with judgment. Grace has everything to do with judgment. Because Jesus is the second Adam, and he's the one who came and did the work that the first Adam was supposed to do. Jesus did withstand and overcome the devil. Jesus did live a life of perfect obedience and holiness, loving God and loving others perfectly. And so Jesus, through his work and through his life, earned, through his work, he earned that heavenly rest for himself, and he earned it for us. Like, because Jesus also died for us, and suffered the punishment that is due for our sins on the cross. He suffers in our place, our failure to work, to love God and to love others the way we should. And now Jesus shares the reward of his work with us. By grace, through the gift of faith, Jesus saves us. Jesus is like Adam, only Jesus spiritually fathers, spiritually fathers a new kingdom people. And Jesus describes his new kingdom in terms of creation, like, like God at the beginning. There's this place where the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus about the Sabbath, the Sabbath, which is a sign of the heavenly rest to come. And Jesus tells them that they, like, they, they're like, you can't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, that's exa- like, the Sabbath, that's exactly what I'm working at. That's exactly what I'm working on so that I can earn that heavenly rest for all of you. John five seventeen. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. The work of creation, it would have been consummated through the work of Adam, but he messed it up. So Jesus came to work and the work of new creation is consummated through Jesus's work. I'll just end with this. Do you see grace and judgment, how they go together? Jesus does the work and yet, he's not treated like family. God treats him like the unbeliever. And he gets our judgment. And he is cast off. Eternal distance from God on the cross. Jesus does the work of salvation for us. And Jesus is still at work in his church now through this gospel ministry, which we have got to continue on. Because Jesus continues to save sinners through his church. And so we work. And we don't lose hope for our brothers and sisters. And we don't lose hope for the lost. And we work in the world and we work in the church until Jesus comes back to consummate his work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this letter, this second letter to the Thessalonians and how it's still today in your awesome mercy and providence has everything to do with us. We pray. Uh, that we would hold these words dear, that we too would uh, do the work that you've given us to do uh, here in the church and in the world, relying on the work that Jesus has already done for us and the work that he will consummate. Bless us, we pray to this end. Amen.